0: Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Nydia. <clears throat> In um, 2009, Facebook created the like button. And that same year, uh, Twitter created the retweet button. And so Facebook followed suit and then created their share button. And what these features did was it enabled these online platforms to be able to track what was the most engaging content for their users. And so they created an algorithm that put the posts and put the content in front of your faces that was most likely to get a like or a retweet or some sort of engagement and interaction from you or from its users. And what they learned was that the posts that were getting the most amount of likes and the most amount of engagement were posts that triggered emotion, specifically anger, anger at the other. Those were the things that were generating the most amount of activity and energy on these platforms. So by 2013, people began to realize that, oh, you can get, quote, internet famous, or you can go viral, if you post something hateful or controversial or over-the-top or outlandish, because it's kind of like the online version of uh, not being able to look at a car accident. It's like if somebody's online and they're enraged and they're screaming, it just draws attention. And so now you have this whole online machine that's being driven by outrage. In fact, one one of the... engineers at Twitter that helped create the retweet button who now regrets having been a part of doing that. He said because he would, just, he would just see what he called rage mobs forming together online, and here's what he said. He said, quote, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. And so you think about this. Okay, rage is driving social media. Rage drives our politics, Rage is what drives many churches. Um, there there are these um, videos on YouTube, these compilations called public freakouts. I don't know if you've seen these. It's just cell phone footage. It's compilations of person after person after person after person who's in a restaurant or is in a store who's just screaming at the manager or losing their mind or throwing the french fries back in the person's face or whatever. You have road rage incidents that are, you know, increasing. And so you, you kind of take this all... Together, and I think we all collectively feel that people are angry, people are critical, people are upset, people are just ready to go off with just a hair-trigger, you know, reflex. And into this world that we're in, uh, you know, we've been been looking at this book called Philippians, this book, this letter that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. In the passage that Nydia just read for us, Cuts against the grain of this cultural moment of rage that we find ourselves in right now in a way that I think is extremely helpful, extremely timely, extremely necessary, extremely shocking in some ways. So I want to jump in and let's just talk about it. And I want to look at this passage under three big headings as it helps us navigate a world that is driven by anger and hostility and rage. I want want you to see three things. First, what we are called to do. Secondly, what we are called to lose. And then thirdly, how we can do it. So what we're called to do, what we're called to lose, and then how do we do it? So first, let's look at what we're called to uh, do. And if you look at verse 12, at the very beginning, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's pretty simple what, what he's calling people who claim to follow Jesus to do. He's saying, okay, if you follow Jesus, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Um, First, it might be helpful to talk about what it does not mean. He does not say work for your salvation, meaning if you want to be saved, you want to get in on this salvation action of being delivered from yourself, delivered from your sin, delivered from death. Well, if you want that, you're going to have to put in some work and so if you're devoted enough, if you're generous enough, if you care for the poor enough, if, if you're sincere enough, then maybe, just maybe, you can get in on some of this salvation business. That is not what he's saying. He's saying if you are in Christ, you have already been saved. This is already yours. It's been given to you completely by grace. That's why the very first word of that sentence is the word therefore. This is a conclusion of what He just wrote right before this. And we looked at that last week. Austin walked us through that passage, which was basically the gospel. It was Jesus living, dying, rising for his people. He did the work. He accomplished it. It was completely by grace. He's the one that did all of it now in light of that. Therefore, work out that salvation with fear and trembling, meaning take that reality that is yours, and and flesh it out, work it out, draw out all of the implications for what that actually looks like in your real life. If you are somebody saved completely by grace, what does that mean for how you relate to your money? What does that mean for how you relate to your body? If you're saved by grace, what does that mean for how you relate to your neighbors or how you relate to your own anger? There's a... um, pastor that I heard use this illustration that I'm stealing and giving it to you, but he said, you know, imagine yourself living in an agrarian society, pre-industrial old society, which is, you know, there's no, way, no real way to make a living outside of farming, as it were. And you are incredibly poor, and you don't have land, and you don't have equipment, and you don't have seeds, and you don't have any connections to anybody else to help you, and so you're you're just you're destitute. And somebody comes along, and they're extremely generous, and um, they say, "I'm going to gift you with all of this land. I'm going to gift you with all of this farming equipment. I'm going to hook you up with all of these people that are going to come help you and work for you. I'm going to give you." buckets of seeds to go do your thing. And this is all, it's all a gift. It's all given to you. And so what you do is you say, okay, this is awesome. So you take all those gifts and then you go out into the field and you work it. You cultivate it. You plant the seed. You do, you do the, you do the labor. And let's just say that it creates this amazing harvest. You've planted a bazillion zucchinis, you got a ton of zucchinis and people are coming in and saying, wow, you have just, you've done an amazing job. You've worked really hard. You're going to be eating zucchini bread for weeks. This is awesome. And you would say, yeah, okay, yeah, I did, I did work. But the only reason I could work was because all of this was a gift. I couldn't have done any of this apart from my benefactor. But yeah, my benefactor called me to participate in this thing, even though it was all a gift." This zucchini wasn't going to just magically grow itself. I had to go do something. That's the imagery that Paul is is kind of tapping into here. It's all a gift. It's all been given to you completely by grace, but you have a responsibility to participate in the work of this gift. So there's a word that I don't want you to be afraid of. It's the word effort. Effort. There's a, that, that's a word that in our kind of particular churchy circles can feel a little cringy to us, can feel like this is, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's wrong. We're being legalistic if we're telling people you have to use some effort. But, but if you look at the passage, Paul says uh, following Jesus takes effort on our part. We, we, it takes effort for us to conform our lives to the life that Jesus died to give us. Effort is not, it's not a bad word. He says your calling, if you're in Christ, is to work out your salvation. Now, think about it like this. If you were to go to um, a therapist, go to a counselor, because you need to process some stuff from your life or from your story, you go into their office and you sit in their comfy, squishy chairs and you make yourself a cup of tea and you're feeling cozy and you're sitting there and they're asking you questions. And let's say you're totally disengaged. Walls are up, one word answers. Just go through the whole session like that. And at the end, they they encourage you to do some journaling. Maybe read this article or read this until we meet again. You don't do it. Come back a week later, do it again. After a few weeks of engaging in this process like this, you, you might look up after a month or so and realize this is this feels like it's a waste of money. I'm not getting anything out of this. Because you're not you're not getting anything out of it you're not doing you're not putting in any work which is actually a phrase that that therapists use d- doing the work therapy and health doesn't just happen by osmosis it involves you participating in the process now if you think about that in terms of spiritual dynamics if you or someone that you know has at one point been connected to Jesus has felt your faith vibrant, warm, alive, and maybe you or someone that you know has gotten to a point where you're just like, I feel kind of numb, feel just kind of bored, feels like all this stuff doesn't really matter to me, like maybe it did at one point in my life. And if there was something like that, you, you, you might want to sit down with him and say, okay, there's a lot of reasons for how that can happen. Um, are you going to church and this person might say, oh, "No, not really." "Do you like ever pray?" "No, not not really." "Do you like read the Bible any?" "No, definitely not." "Do you ever intentionally put yourself around poverty?" "No." "Do you serve do you serve anybody but you?" what did you think was going to happen? That's like you looking at a field without any seeds in it and getting frustrated why nothing's growing. Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And if that sounds legalistic to you, if that sounds contrary to the gospel to you, it's not. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning And so if you're someone who has tasted grace, it is our calling to begin to work that out, flesh that out, engage with that, exert effort as we follow Jesus. So that's the first big thing. That's what we're called to do. But okay, there's more to this. What does that actually look like practically? Well, Paul tells us we have to lose something. If that's what we're called to do, what are we called to lose? And I think this is so fascinating. You know, because you think about Paul in his headspace, he's like, big lofty, work out your salvation, big giant theological ideas. And you would think, okay, the way that you flesh that out is he's going to tell us to go be an overseas missionary, go start a nonprofit, go plant a church, go do something big. This is big stuff. He doesn't do that. Look at verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. He's saying, okay, you want to flesh out what it looks like to work out your salvation? It's pretty simple. Stop complaining. Stop fighting. In fact, look at verse 15. He says, so that, do this, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped, 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 warped? Why can't I say that word? Warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. He's talking about the church being a counterculture, a, a, a radical counterculture that shines in the light of a very dark cultural space that it occupies. And he's saying, look, if you want to be a radical countercultural movement of the gospel, it's pretty simple stop complaining, stop fighting. Now, why would he need um, to say this? Because it is the default setting of every fallen human being to complain about everything. We complain about the weather, except for like the six months we, or the six weeks we happen to find ourselves in right now. We'd like this time, but any other time in Memphis, weather's the worst. We complain about um, Memphis drivers. We complain about gas prices, MLGW, the refs, how slow the the services and midtown restaurants, uh, politics, our kids, our roommates, on and on and on and on. And then when you step into church, it's not like that instinct just gets turned off. Sometimes it gets kind of even more activated. We complain about the preaching and the music and the donuts and the programs and the parking and the nursery and the leadership. and the, It's just... It's like all of us are going through life like Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, just complaining about everything. I, um, one of the blessings and curses of being a preacher is before I share this stuff with you, I have to sit and soak in this for you know, a week or so as I'm preparing. And, and this passage, thinking about this, utterly exposed me in a way that was shameful Because I don't think I really realized how much I complain about everything until I really started to think about do everything without grumbling or arguing. While while I'm in this headspace swimming around this passage, this was maybe a week or so ago, I had to go to Kroger to um, get some stuff. And the moment that I got in my car, this inner critic, this complainer just woke up and was activated inside of me so that I start driving down the road, hitting these potholes, and the road is all jacked up. I'm like, why can't Memphis fix these roads? I'm angry at the potholes. And then I get to the corner of McLean and Peabody, and they're doing all this construction to fix the potholes in the ground. Why all this construction all the time? Why is everything, I can't get one place to the other. So by the time I get to the Kroger on Union parking lot, I'm already not great. And then, of course, being in that parking lot, everything is in hyperdrive. This parking lot's the worst. Why is this car taking up eight spaces for one car? Nobody can drive here. And so I'm, I'm, I'm already complaining, already stressed out. By the time I park the car and walk into the store, I get the one grocery cart with a jacked up wheel that squeaks. It can't, it can't roll right. And I'm, I always get the one cart that's screwed up. And then I'm thinking, it's not just the one cart. It's every cart. This is, everybody has the jacked-up wheel. Why can't Kroger get any, any you know, shopping carts right? I'm frustrated. I'm going to get my produce. I'm getting my stuff. They don't have any garlic. I need garlic. How can you have no garlic in a grocery store in 2022? No garlic. I'm going around the corner. I've got to get some salsa. You ever had this experience where you've where you got to get the thing, but there's somebody... Right, standing right where you are, where you where you got to get your thing, and they're taking ten years to make their selection. I'm like, I just, I, I just got to get the one. Can you get? So, so you wait, but then inside the the critic is losing his mind. Eventually, I get the salsa, go get the bacon. Seventy five dollars for bacon now. Put that in the in the cart. By the time I go to the checkout, the self checkout line, fifteen people deep, and I'm sitting there complaining, murmuring, and I'm looking. They have 12 machines. Only two of them are working. Only two of them are on. Inside, freaking out, grumbling, 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 complaining, complaining. That's one trip to the grocery store. During the week, I'm preparing for this sermon. What that did is it exposed something in me that I realized, oh my goodness, this thing is this thing runs deep. This thing runs deep in me. Maybe it runs deep in you. And and I started to wonder, what is that underneath? What is it that gives me and us this critical, negative, complainy spirit? You know what it is? Entitlement. Entitlement is this feeling of being victimized because I deserve special treatment. I deserve better. I deserve a decent shopping cart, cheaper bacon. That, that's what I believe in my heart of hearts as I go through this life. And so I complain, and we complain, because deep down, we feel entitled to something better. You know what's fascinating about this passage? is that Paul uses this word grumble, do everything without grumbling. Every commentator says he's intentionally referencing this. He's alluding to the story of the ancient Israelites. And you might remember the story. Back in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel, they were enslaved to Egypt. They were oppressed. They were miserable. They couldn't deliver themselves. They couldn't rescue themselves. They cry out for help. And so God intervenes and he delivers them completely by grace. He rescues them, does the 10 plagues thing. They cross the Red Sea. That's Exodus chapter 14. Once they're saved, once they're delivered on the other side, they're liberated, they're free, and they all bust out into song, and they're worshiping God. In Exodus 15, the very next sentence, the very next passage, they start complaining. We don't have any water. God, you brought us out here in the middle of the wilderness. You want us to drink sand? This is ridiculous. Where's the water? That's Exodus 15. Exodus chapter 16 they start complaining about the food. They're like, we used to eat all this meat, all this barbecue back in Egypt. We got nothing out here. This is the worst. Complain about the food, complain about the meat. Exodus 17, they get thirsty again, start complaining about the water. Where's the water? Okay, well, you give us some water a couple chapters, go, we're still thirsty. Exodus chapter 18, they're complaining so much that Moses' father-in-law steps in and he's like, Bro, you you need to delegate some of this. You, you need an org chart to help you like, to deal with some of this all these complaints that you're getting all the time. Exodus 19, Moses goes up onto the top of the mountain to meet with God and to receive the Ten Commandments. And what does everybody do at the base of the mountain? Complain. This is taking forever. Where'd this dude go? We're just sitting out in the middle of nowhere. This is the worst. You read the story, complain, complain. I mean, it's like exhausting. And it goes on forever over and over and over, it's, it's, it's like annoying, it's, it's, almost, it's, I mean, it's humorous because you read this and you're like, okay, here are these people miraculously saved by grace, totally by God's power and he liberates them and then what do they do? They complain about everything and Paul is saying, remember that story? That's you that's me that's us That's what we do, which shows you that our entitlement runs so deep, you can even have a life-altering experience of grace, and the entitlement thing doesn't just magically go away. It is entrenched in us. This is why when Paul says, I want you to work out your salvation, I want you to flesh this out in real life, the first thing that comes to his mind is, you got to do all this without grumbling, the embodiment of salvation by grace is not entitlement. It's not critical, complaining, negative spirit. It is gratitude. That's the embodiment. And so what it looks like for us to work out our salvation is to deal with that thing in us, to, to see it for what it really is. I and mean, when I go to Kroger now, I'm like painfully aware of how ugly this thing is that's in me. To work out our salvation means we, we go to war with that instinct. We, we try to lose our entitlement because that's is that is miserable. Isn't it miserable to just walk around complaining about everything? That is not fun. That is not joyful. We have to lose that if we're going to start to tap into the joy that is offered in following Jesus. So last question then. How do we do that? If it is so entrenched in us that you can even be preparing a sermon about it. Meanwhile, a different part of your brain is freaking out, complaining about everything. How do you get rid of this? What do you do? If that's what we're called to do, what we're called to lose, how do we do it? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us. Look, Look back up at verse 13. How do you work out your salvation? Here's how. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul's saying the only reason you can do this is because God's already at work in you. He is proactively doing something to disrupt and counteract our default settings. He does not leave us to ourselves to fix ourselves, to take care of ourselves. He doesn't rescue us from the pit, put us on a rock, and then say, good luck, you're on your own. He says, I will be actively at work in you. And notice how he's working in in us. Look more closely at verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you to do what? Not just to act. God isn't doing stuff in us just so that we behave, just so that we do good things. He's doing stuff in us, not just at an external level, but at an internal level. He says it is God who works in you to will to to he's changing the very things that you want so that your desires are more synced up with his which means this if even right now you're feeling or sensing something inside of you that feels like i hate how much i complain i wish i didn't complain so much a life of contentment in Jesus and gratitude sounds really awesome. I wish I had that. This is saying, you know where that feeling came from? You didn't manufacture it. It came from him. It's a gift. Even that feeling, even that sensation is a gift from his hand. And Paul is saying, okay, take that gift and cultivate it plant it, work, put in effort to really grow that and strengthen that so that maybe over time that entitlement starts to get chipped away and that gratitude actually starts to grow. This is why right after this, Paul says, here's the way that we go about doing this. Look at verse 16. He says, do all this as you hold firmly to the word of life. That phrase, the word of life, is just shorthand for the gospel, which is kind of just Jesus. He's saying, here's how you do all this. You hold fast. You hang on. You cling to Jesus for dear life, like you're clinging to an oxygen mask underwater. This means that the posture of the Christian, the posture of someone who follows Jesus, is on the one hand hopeful. Because God's the one who changes us, He's the one who transforms us, He's the one who fixes us, and at the same time, it makes us way more needy, way more dependent. Where we say, Jesus, I've got to hold, I, you have to protect me from me. I need you to fix what is so jacked up inside of me, because there is something off. If I'm someone who has been saved by grace and I've got this critical, complaining, negative attitude, something is off. I need you to fix that, help me with that. I need you to help me feel even my need for you. I can't manufacture that myself. That's the posture. The good news of the gospel is this though, that regardless of how tightly or well we are clinging to Jesus, he is the one that is ultimately clinging to us. He is the one that is committed to working in us and he's not gonna quit. He said in the chapter before this, he said, this work that he began in you, he, he will bring it to completion. He is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So, final thought, and then I'm done. This is your homework. I'm going give to you, give you a homework assignment. I want you to consider, I want to invite you to pray for just two minutes a day. Maybe you're the kind of person who has never actually done that before. Maybe you're the kind of person where you're like, oh, I pray sometimes. Here's an invitation. You can do it first thing in the morning. You can do it right before you go to bed. Do it during a lunch break. Doesn't matter. Take two minutes. And during that two minutes, I want you to do two things. Thank God for something and ask him for help for something. Simple. God, thank you for that amazing meal that I had with my friends yesterday, pure gift. And will you help me feel less, less uh, anxious tomorrow? God, thank you for the weather, it's been awesome. Uh, will you help me feel my need for you more tomorrow? Because I don't really feel it. Who knows, you take, you take those two things and over time, that, that, that's you working the field. That's you cultivating the gift that he gives you, and who knows what will grow up out of that? Who knows how your entitlement will start to wither and erode, and you will become somebody who is grateful for Jesus, dependent on Jesus, and begins to appreciate all of his generous gifts in small ways and in big ways. So why don't we do that now? How about I close by praying for us and praying to that end? So let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it does expose us, however painfully. But thank you that it never exposes us merely or simply to shame us or condemn us, but to always lead us by the hand back to Jesus. And thank you that Jesus does not abandon us, that he does not um, reject us, despite how entitled we really feel, despite how much we grumble, despite how much we complain and gripe and whine. Thank you that you love even people like us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the gift of just being together and processing these things together. We do pray that you'd help us, that you would help us to see our entitlement buried so deep inside of us. Help us to see it as ugly. Help us to turn from it, to turn to a, a life of faith, a life of trust, and a life of gratitude. Help us to sense and to feel our need for you. Help us to trust you. Father, we cannot manufacture these things in our own hearts. We need you to do it, and we are grateful that you do and that you will. So please do that, and we pray all of this in the name of our king, who is our provider and who is unbelievably generous. King Jesus.